Welcome to FRP Carecast, a brand new podcast brought to you by FRP Advisory. Every episode, our experts explore the health of adult social care across the UK. Utilising our existing knowledge, we'll dive into the key themes underpinning the most pressing factors impacting care homes investigating staffing and restructuring, and unpacking the impacts of ESG, digitization, and innovation. Join us as we speak to leading experts in the field who are intimately involved in working in the sector on the front line. Thank you for joining us for our third podcast in FRP's CareCast series. Today we're going to be talking about restructuring in the care home sector space. We're joined by David Shambrook, Simon Harrison and Mickey Nertman. Uh, David, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Thanks Rob. Uh, Hi, my name is David Shambrook. I'm a partner in the restructuring team for FRP Advisory in their London office, working with a variety of corporate clients and lenders and institutions and investors, helping businesses in stress and distress um, and having worked on a significant number of sort of care projects over the last, gosh, six, seven years, um, where they're helping lenders, helping management teams and other investors trying to find solutions, but also sometimes where, where the solutions are more limited, taking more direct action, and that can include sort of trading administrations and sales and, and that kind of stuff as well. Hi, thanks for inviting me. I'm Simon Harrison. I run my own portfolio of chair and non-exec roles exclusively in uh, social care in the UK uh, and in Europe. My background is as a nurse, MA in change management and a career in the acute sector before moving into social care some 10, 15 years ago. Hi, I'm Mickey Lertman. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I'm with uh, Investec Bank. I've uh, I've been with Investec Bank for 28 years. Uh, I run uh, Investec's recovery team. Uh, I help build Investec's property lending business and moved into restructuring recovery uh, environment uh, about a decade ago. Thank you very much, everyone. So uh, I wanted to kick off our conversation today by starting talking about what the position was in the care home sector pre-coronavirus. Care homes have never been in the public consciousness as much as they are now. I said I think exactly the same thing when I spoke in my first podcast about staffing and recruitment. But in terms of in the restructuring space and what you collectively have seen, what was the position, Simon, before the pandemic with operators? Were they healthy? Were they struggling? I think a lot has changed, but in many ways, nothing's changed because I think the people who were struggling before have probably managed to get through because of all the assistance that's been provided. And there was almost an inability to fail because of the opportunities that were presented through loans, etc. I think now people are looking at what they're actually facing today and then reflecting on whether or not they managed to get through successfully or whether they just limped along for a period of time. So I think if someone was in distress before, they probably had opportunities, unless, of course, they were hit significantly by, frankly, you know, COVID deaths of residents and occupancy took a, took a fall. But if they didn't, they'll be looking now at the problems they were facing then, which probably are exacerbated now 
when we talk about Stafford, and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about that. It's interesting. So I was looking at some of the uh, insolvency statistics. So between 2017 to 2019, there was an average of 95 um, failures, particularly in the in the care home sector space. David, in your role as kind of financial advisor to lenders and other stakeholders, what were you seeing before coronavirus actually came around and affected the, the industry more widely? Yeah, so uh, I mean, there, was, there seemed to be a, a kind of never-ending sort of list of headwinds facing the sector. I think it's been a, you know, ever since sort of Southern Cross um, back in the financial crisis, which saw, you know, all sorts of government intervention and the um, the market oversight teams formed off the back of that. You, you would keep seeing, you know, every year there'd be something else. There'd be the national insurance increase, which then flows through everyone's payroll. There would be um, the, the living wage increase, which, of course, if you take people right at the bottom of the pay scale, which is a substantial amount of people working in care homes, whether that's handymen or carers, but if you put them up by 50p, then you put up the, the senior carer, the nurse, and it flowed all the way through. So they, there just always seemed to be this kind of never-ending list of, of, of issues that were hitting them. But And this was before coronavirus. This was before, this is pre-corona. Um, but people were people were managing, um, and, and, I, and I think... Yeah, you know, I see the ones who are who are struggling, but there they always seem to be a feeling that their asset, their good assets or, or bad assets. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. I think there's good leadership teams and bad leadership mm. teams, actually. And I think you know, if you're a good leadership team, you can manage you can manage the asset you've got. But there certainly seemed to be you know an increase in regulatory standards, and I think that was borne out by some of the statistics. Something like forty percent of CQC inspections coming back as RI or, or, or worse. So there was a real increase in 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 the in the standard being set by the regulator, which again I think was in reaction to public scandals and media scandals in the mid mid last decade. You had increasing cost bases. What we would see, what I would see, are underinvested homes where there is not they did not have the scope to make the investment they needed to bring them to the standard that the regulators required. So you would be looking at homes that are already on a cost basis versus a fee basis, struggling to tread water, leveraged, while finance costs were very low, there was never going to be enough room in that cash flow to do the investment that made the home what you know, the, the right environment to everyone's standard. You know, and this could be thinking you know, where you've got old conversions, trying to make the lift big enough to get a wheelchair in, trying to make the corridor wide enough to get a bed through. Actually those are massive bits of CapEx, particularly in an older building. And in those older buildings, if it's 30 bed, you are not going to have the space in your cash flow to do that kind of investment. And it's sort of almost inevitable, unfortunately, for those particularly as you see higher and higher acuity going in. I mean, I think it's a conversation when you've had before, Simon, but, uh, you know, I think when I go to a nursing home now, the acuity of the people, of the residents there, would have been a geriatric ward in yeah. a hospital. The way, I, the way I look at it is, is residential homes used to be for gentlefolk who wanted to give up their home and move in somewhere before they really needed care. Residential homes now are what was a nursing home, and a nursing home is now what was a cottage hospital because the NHS just doesn't provide those services. Yeah, that is a real issue, you know. And, and the, the, the national nursing crisis has been going on for how long now? I think most of my, most of my professional career, yeah. it feels like. The, the staffing crisis is, is real and stark for all providers. Yeah. Well, you know, good, bad, and indifferent. For, for, and, and whether you're a it, provider or not, right? Because you're competing with hospitals, you're competing with the NHS, with private. It isn't just a. It's not just a 
care sector. Well, it's sorry, it's a whole care sector issue. But well, I think when we talk about when we talk about staff, and you talked about it, it's a people business. Let's not lose sight of that. You talked earlier about you know carers and handymen. I think was what you said. But you know when we're looking at who who's our biggest competition? Well, for nurses, it probably is other care homes and the NHS because you know, we're talking about qualified staff there. But when we talk about carers, who are our biggest workforce? Yes, it's our competitors. Yes, it's the NHS. But it's retail. It's hospitality. It's it's a whole range of people, and certainly post COVID and post Brexit, you know that pool of people is shrinking. Yeah. And when you look at some of the demographics and the geography of some of our care homes that aren't in cities, they're in rural areas. You know, it's a real crisis in terms of being able to recruit people. You haven't got the chimney pots. You haven't got people in the local community. Mm-hmm. The cost of living increases and the cost of fuel is putting people off driving. A lot of these homes are in lovely locations, but they're not on a bus route. So it, it limits your pool all the time of people that you can you can find to work with you. And Mickey, you must see that as well, I guess, because same as me, you, you, your portfolio isn't purely care by any means, and neither, neither is mine of clients. But that that struggle to recruit and retain staff, particularly at the lower lower pay end, I, I see that as an issue across all of the businesses I advise at the moment. I don't I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, what you said about <clears throat> this sector sort of facing headwinds ever since you know you can remember for an extremely long period of time is how I would look at it. I mean, we uh, traditionally got involved in this sector pre the GFC. And uh, that was a point in time where there was a lot of talk around consolidation in the sector. And that was where you had the sort of sudden crosses and the full seasons. And um, and it was a pity that those situations didn't work because the sector to me feels very fragmented. Um, and I doubt we'll get back to those days for many, many years uh, to come whereby there was a, a sort of a chance of a consolidation in the sector. But yeah, I mean, the issue sort of post-COVID was all about finding the right team. And, you know, for us in terms of the restructuring stuff that we have to deal with, which isn't significant because it's not a sector that we focused on. We happened to do these deals pre-GFC because we were following clients into that market. I liked the yields that we were looking at. I liked the potential for consolidation at that point in time. But as a result of what we saw there, we decided, look, this isn't a sector that we're going to continue with, but we've still got the deals that we dealt with then from a restructuring perspective. And so I'm learning about the industry. And what I've come to the conclusion of is that finding the right people is incredibly difficult, incredibly, incredibly difficult. COVID exacerbated that amongst all the other challenges uh, that we had. Um, And I would say that's probably the key, let's say, constraining factor in terms of making the homes profitable is finding the right people yeah, and it is, as I said, it's a people business. But for me, the key person uh, is the home manager. So when we're talking about residential nursing homes, it's the, it's the home manager. You can have the best chair and chief exec in the world. And the best asset. And the best asset in the world. But that person is key because they not only recruit and retain staff and therefore spend money. You know, they control the agency and hopefully there isn't, but sometimes there is. You know, they control the quality, which is imperative to, you know, our future. They're the ones that open the door to the CQC. Um, and they're the ones that fill the beds. They're the ones that open the doors to the family members. They sell the beds. And they're probably, within a, within a framework, you know, negotiate the fee that the private payer is going to pay. Okay, if it's a local authority, that's less, you know, negotiable. But even so, there is still scope there to, you know, to try and push it to the higher end. So, you know, your home manager, and there, there is more often than not, I'm sure there are some statistics on this, but more often than not, there is a correlation between the longevity of the manager and how long they've been in post, 
the quality of the home uh, and the staff cost and the occupancy. Um, because you, you will see that it's, it's unlikely that you've had someone there for a long time that has a home that's other than good. So you know, that whole recruitment and retention piece uh, it is imperative to our success. I think that's, that's really interesting because we talk about the cost of living crisis now, but I remember Ed Miliband in the 2015 election talking about the cost of living then. So I think what we're, what we're hearing in the conversation now is actually care homes were healthy. They were, they were getting by. And I think your comment, Simon, that because of coronavirus, a lot of the kind of pre-existing structural problems that were there were, were actually just brought to the public's uh, attention during coronavirus. And some of the other demographic problems with the ageing population, I think you mentioned, and local authorities trying desperately to increase bed capacity, but not necessarily wanting to fund operators actually entering into those markets to allow them to to do so. So if we if we pivot now to, to think about the coronavirus period, you know, early uh, 2020 onwards, again, I, I looked at the insolvency statistics and um, there were 50 failures in 2020 alone. So way below the previous averages. Mickey, in terms of your position from a lender perspective, how did you how did you approach coronavirus with some of your care home facing customers? You know, by the time COVID had hit, we we didn't have any uh, let's say uh, performing loans in this sector. They were all, as I say, they were sort of pre GFC, and we'd already put in place restructuring uh, strategies um, in order to protect the bank's position. But when Corona hit, I mean, it was hell of an interesting. Uh, to be honest, I mean, I always say, I think people have that's one word for it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, everybody has different experiences, and I'm I'm sort of one of those people who when people say to me, "I had a great COVID," I'm sort of blinking my eyes and uh, and tut tutting. But um, it, it was interesting insofar as how it manifested. We we felt tremendous responsibility in terms of making sure that the residents of the homes were properly looked after, that the maintenance of the homes was properly done during the crisis. But the obvious impact of it were that your occupancy levels were significantly down. On where projections were, your cost of of having superb people there was incredibly higher because you know you had to go to the agencies um, in order to make sure that you got people there. The morale was really low; it was really difficult keeping people engaged, and you know the cost of life and the psychological impact was just immense. It was just immense, and so. You know, we were acutely aware of those particular factors in relation to this sector in terms of how we were looking at it and how our property managers at the time were trying to do the best they could under the circumstances. And we were just waiting it out and uh, just following it like everybody else and just doing our best to try and keep people morale up and notwithstanding all the terrible stuff that was going on. I think from an operator's perspective, I think the word that people often use to describe that whole period was they're tired, they're just exhausted. Yeah. Everyone felt a sense of responsibility right through the organisation and people were just totally fatigued week in, week out, just looking to see if there was going to be an end to it. And, you know, members of staff putting extra shifts in because they just had to, you know, you hear stories of people living on site and going the extra mile. I had that, you know, a home I was a home I was um, administrator of in Wales, which I've recently recently sold. The, the manager there was phenomenal, yeah. You know, and she was she was you know, and they were they were very remote, forever getting let down by agency, really struggling to recruit nurses. So she was doing she was doing day shifts, night shifts all the time. Yeah. And actually, for us, the key key risk we felt on that business 
was her because she was keeping it together, yeah. um, but supporting her and not exhausting yeah. her. And but then the whole process then of taking an admission. You think about how you know how we fill beds now. You know, someone comes and takes a look around the home. Hopefully, you convert that into an admission, and they move in. You integrate them into the home straight away. But you know, they were having to bring people into the home and trying to keep an elderly person in a room separate from everyone else until they tested negative to make sure they were okay to integrate with that home community. That's not how care homes work, but that's what we had to do, almost making it an acute environment. So care homes that we talk about, all the things that we want to do to make them homely, we were going away from that to make them like hospitals. It's got to be person-centred, you've got to, you know, it's about the needs of the individual, about integration, it's about, and actually, and we just completely cut across all of that. You used to actually have to cut off floors so that yes. people couldn't mix to, to prevent that infection control just which, which, is a, which is a complete rowback of the last what 10 15 yeah. years of fearing the sex which is about being person-centered it's what, it's what we're not about yeah not yeah. being an instant not being you know that's the thing it's not an institution yeah. this is not an asylum this is not a you know that that has been and, and then dealing with family members who say why can't i come and see my loved one and then, obviously, at the end, when they weren't allowed to come and see the loved one at the end, and you go, that's that's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. It really is. You know, it's quite interesting because there was a lot of there was a tremendous amount of learning that, oh, that, yeah. that, that, that went on. And, you know, initially, care home residents, when they got ill, they would go to hospital and they would be allowed to come back in initially because, you know, everybody was learning in terms of, my gosh, how contagious is this disease? And so many people got ill at the beginning when, I think, as a community... We were learning in terms of how to deal with this. And then it went from that to being that nobody was allowed to sort of go in and, and visit um, any of the residents of the care homes. And that put tremendous psychological pressure on the residents of the care homes who their lifeline was seeing their relatives and friends and they couldn't interact with them. And so, I, I mean, it, tremendous learning experience. And, um, you know, we're a lot wiser now, I would suggest, in terms of how to deal with a pandemic of, of this nature. But... Um, Heartbreaking stories. Just thinking about things from a, a financial lens, the government's put in £1.6 billion worth of government funding, and that's filtered down to the local authorities. Uh, I was doing some research um, into how the local authorities were financially trying to support the care homes during the pandemic. That's free PPE, payment on uh, set usage, even if occupancy dipped below that set usage, paying in advance and various other grants. So how did operators fare during coronavirus from a financial perspective? Yeah, it was, well, it's, what you describe there is is what you know, the government would say, this is how we've dealt with it and this is how local yeah. government should deal was, with was it. Was that enough? And was but, that actually, was that the life rafter that it, they well, needed? the reality was what, what happened was geographical difference. So some local authorities were, were very good. I mean, essentially the money just came to them and it came straight out. Others almost created a cottage industry where providers had to employ extra people in order to justify the claim. And then the claim was disputed, which all became a cash flow issue. The reality was you had to have PPE, you know, you had to have staffing because that, that doesn't change. And, you know, your occupancy would fluctuate depending on, frankly, how many people had died uh, and how many new residents you were able to, to bring in. So in some instances, the local authorities, would, I would say, were very supportive. In others, they made it quite difficult and employers had adi- uh, providers had additional costs in order to provide people in finance who would be chasing the money to which they were entitled. 
And then often then you'd have disputes where at the end of the month there'd be, you know, the local authority wanted a consolidation and putting more pressure on a finance team that was already under pressure and probably not working in an office, you know, probably working remotely. And, and therein lie, you know, lies uh, issues for, you know, your non-customer facing staff in a, in a care provider where you've got, you know, people like the finance team who would normally be generally speaking, working together in an office and bouncing off each other and being quite effective in terms of working the systems and processes. But, you know, you're making all these individuals work from home and some of them are working from bedrooms because they don't have a home office. Mm-hmm. So let's not forget, you know, the, the impact that that had on an organisation outside of the actual care home itself, but the whole operation. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, I think it would be borne out by the insolvency statistics. There are and you see that across the board because again, you know, this is this is just purely targeted at care that that one point six billion you refer to, but lots of care homes also got bounce back loans, mm. Sybil's loans, yeah. furlough. So there's all the wider measures as well yeah. that went in. So actually, the, the real funding figure must be much higher. I sort of think I think going back to a comment you made right at the start, Simon, is that you know, where businesses that were struggling are still struggling, but that has that has let them. You know, limp on and go through, and come out the other side of face. Whether it's not all of them, in my experience, I actually sort of one of the things I witnessed as my sort of insolvency practitioner hat was actually it looked very much to me like the local authority managed out some assets and managed out some homes they didn't like. So you'd now find yourself in a sort of slightly bizarre situation: homes that were always good and always full and had a, a good mix, or even sort of purely private. There'd be an outbreak. There'd be a reduction in occupation. They would want to refill quickly, and they may never have taken local authority before, but now they would because yes. they want to refill because you need to you need to be full to make the business function. Yeah, no, I've seen, I've seen that as yeah. a business, which would then mean that the home that was traditionally a local authority home isn't refilling. They've had an outbreak, isn't refilling because now the, the local authority couldn't get people into this good home before it was all private. Now they can. And the local authorities I saw in several several instances, and again, very different geographic because again, depends on the geography. So I saw a home in one area where you know we spoke to the local authorities and said, look, can we, can we turn this around? Can we refill it? And they said, we've got plenty of capacity in much nicer homes, and we won't be sending you anyone anytime soon. Effectively, you know, it was a home they didn't like. It was a management team. They didn't, you know, I don't think they had a problem with the home. Funnily enough, it's a building. They had a problem with the management team, and they were managed out effectively because. They didn't have the demand. The demand wasn't there anymore. And of course, I mean, that was one of the things we saw through COVID was it felt like a death sentence for a long period to go to into a home or to send your mother or your father or whoever, grandma, into a home. You thought, well, am I ever going to see them again? Are they going to die in the home? Am I going to be allowed to visit? So there was a real worry. And then not long after that, they were probably the safest places in the country because they were the first to get the exactly. vaccines. They were full of PPE. They had protocols, exactly. but you couldn't, couldn't convince people to come. Yeah. So it was, it was an absolute roller coaster for operators, I think. An absolute roller coaster. I think operators had to adapt to that by respite care, I think, and a yes. more short-term stays. People who maybe had a, an operation, a hip operation, and they were eventually going to be able to return back to home. But there was a which shorter is, period of which time. Which, of course, is much less profitable from a business perspective because actually, like like all projects the, the bit at the start and the bit at the end are the most intensive and it's the bit in the middle where you make your margin back yeah. where it's steady state well if it's respite you do a hard first week getting them in a hard second week getting them out and you don't have that bit in the middle where you really make your margin you know I mean I'm, you know I don't speak sort of crass almost to put it in that but that, you know, no, these it, things, it, aren't, it, these things aren't businesses and that is how businesses yeah. traditionally work yeah 
Yeah, I mean, look, and, and Mick, I think what you said is, is it was absolutely what we saw across the across the, the, the lending environment. You know, huge amounts of support for parents, genuine consideration to the human the human nature of it, and the, and, and, the that, and that's gone out in the statistics as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So that the you know people, it wasn't the right time, and we needed to to trade through these difficulties, and that's why the support packages are looking at it objectively. They worked, right? You know, yes, they worked, yeah, and, yeah. and businesses would potentially have failed if, but for the uh, support of lenders, civils, and other uh, local authority packages. Just thinking about what you like at, look at, David, as a financial advisor to lenders, what are the kind of warning signs for a, a care home that's in some kind of financial stress? Yeah, I've, I've, gosh, how long have we got? <laughs> um, do you know what? Actually, you know, and it sounds glib, but we've touched on it a few. It's, it's leadership. It's always if if you've got a strong leadership that team they'll they'll get through problems they'll react they'll find solutions and actually and for me a strong leadership team in care you know I mean this is very non scientific uh, small sample but I was thinking I was thinking how many situations have I worked on where the leadership team actually had a care background where you know where the director you know the people really the executive team really making decisions have a background in care. Not in finance or real property, estate. Property, yeah, yeah. And I don't think I've worked on any. Now that is obviously incredibly unscientific, but no doubt there are a lot of leadership teams in care with a care background. Yet they never seem to need my services, or they haven't so far. But I think there's been an evolution. When I started looking at care homes restructurings, it used to be people who were entrepreneurs, ex-investment bankers, or people who had a real estate portfolio, and this was just treated as a pure real estate play. What I've noticed over the last ten years or so is that that's professionalised a lot more. And again, it's completely unscientific, but people have got at least someone on the board who is the doctor or they've got a, a care background. Yeah, yeah. Mick, have you seen that from some of your uh, lens? Yeah, I, I mean, I think <clears throat> Investic's sort of uh, contact client base is sort of high net worth family offices, largely. I mean, we've also got a substantial corporate institutional business. But in terms of my experience, in terms of people that have invested in this sector over the last few years, it's been more family offices that are looking we're chasing yield uh, actually like the yield like the fact that it was an operating model they could sort of roll up their sleeves but most of the time it was being brought to them by somebody who was in the industry who really understood it who a lot of the time had some background mm-hmm. in terms of actually uh, operating previously that's our experience in relation to it and i think they've been very happy i mean i think if they invested in in, in homes in the last five or six years then uh, they've been very satisfied with the yields that they've got compared to, let's say, other property investments in inverted commas uh, that they could have looked at. I find it a bit of a game of two halves, though, in terms of the assets. I don't know if, you, if you've seen the same thing, Mickey. I think the assets I always, nearly always end up doing, nearly always, not always, but nearly always, are conversions. You know, Or maybe they were purpose-built, but purpose-built 30 years ago and never harmed the regs. The, the asset, it seems to me, that everyone wants is 50 to 80 beds, because it's kind of the maximum you can have with one good manager. So you only need one good manager, but you're spreading that cost across 50 to 80 beds, say. It's purpose-built. It's purpose-built in the last 10, 15 years. And it really works with the sort of co- your overhead cost metric versus the turnover you can command. You want to be somewhere near a decent pool, you know, in a city or a town, somewhere where there's a decent sort of a pool of staffing and, and 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 those assets do do very well you know because they they work on those metrics where you've got a conversion or where you've got you know, whether it's a conversion of houses it might be an old school it might be an old priory you know I've sold all these sort of interesting old 
buildings that have been, you know, I did one in I did one in Norfolk. It was lovely. Um, it, it was a school school built in the eighteen fifties. It was Grade Two listed, and they put all this stuff on it. And it was an absolute horror show as a care home. You know, you couldn't get a wheelchair anywhere in it, let alone a bed, let alone a hoist. You know, jagged edges everywhere, and it looked gorgeous, but it was a nightmare as a care. Um, and you could see as well as a resident while you look at it I'd love to live there it's beautiful it's a beautiful building but but <laughs> you need yeah. something that's a little bit more but I've, I've got I've got young children you know and I go around to my friends houses who don't have young children I've got oh, god this is lovely <laughs> I think I think my, my children would do about oh, god quite a significant amount of damage yeah. to the house your your wealth and themselves in about 10 minutes in yeah. here you know jagged edges and ornaments everywhere well, yeah, glass it's, coffee table it's just, it's just not practical I think that going back to your point about the warning signs, I think the other thing, and you talked about the, your, your anecdotes about management teams, I think the other thing is is knowing when to ask for help. What you mustn't do is bury your head in the sand and think it'll go away, because it won't go away and it'll come back and bite you. Yeah. So it's about getting advice at the appropriate time, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and again, sort of talking about those assets, you know, isn't, it is not a hard and fast rule that conversions don't work. Yeah? There's some very successful long-standing care homes but again the ones that do that are are of that nature are old period buildings and in my experience the ones of those that work really well are why you you tend to have it might be a retired gp or a retired nurse or someone from a from a genuine medical care background owns it either even lives in it or lives near it it's only 20 beds 25 beds, but it, it is a complete self-contained community and the forefront of the leadership's approach. Very hands-on. They're totally hands-on, but what they really care about is care. And if that's like, you know, if they've got that, if they've got that sort of professional care background and that primacy of objective of giving good care, having a good environment, the, the residents having a good life at a good time there, it's actually quite hard to get it wrong. Because that that is, you know, when the regulators are coming round, they can see it, they can feel it, they can taste it, it's in the air. And it gives them so much certainty and they will help and the local authorities will help and other government agencies will help. You, you know, you will stay full because people want to stay there. People will come there and they want their family to live there. And those those can be very successful. But again, it really comes from the leadership. Really comes from the I leadership. I think that's right. And a lot of the situations that we, we've seen is that if you don't get the care rights, then the financial KPIs will just deteriorate even further. Yeah. So the starting point isn't trying to maintain costs or keep costs under control isn't necessarily the balance sheet or the P&L. It's who's the home manager? Are they good? And are the kind of dynamics of the care home itself conducive to providing good quality care? And if, if those ingredients aren't there, then actually you'll just never get that financial performance. You're absolutely right. And one of the things that I often do at board level is, is kind of reaching the board agenda because often they'll start with the numbers and go, Let, let's wind back because we'll talk about the numbers at the end because they will flow through yeah. from, from what... So let's get the quality right. Yeah. Let's get the operations right, the recruitment and retention, because it's a people business. And then let's talk about the numbers. Because actually, if you talk about the numbers first, you'll lose sight of the things that actually you can affect. Because the numbers are affected by the other yeah, things. The, the, the numbers are an output. They're Correct. not a starting point. And, and I think it says a lot that you've got... I'm a, I'm a chartered accountant, and Mickey, Mickey's, a, Mickey's an experienced banker. And we're both sat here nodding, saying, yeah. numbers last, not first. Yeah. The, number, the numbers tell you what's happened. Yeah. It's what's happening that's important. Yeah. 
I'm a chartered accountant as well. well there you go. <laughs> you've got you've got a room full of accountants nodding, saying the numbers come last. Uh, what you're saying makes absolute sense, you know. And it actually boils down to us. Our philosophy on business is all about culture, and it is you yeah. know the culture, the the profits flow from the culture. Yeah. And and what you're saying is, let's start off with the culture. Let's yeah. make sure we've got the right people. Yeah. Let's talk about how they're doing. Let's talk about what they need. Yeah. And let's make sure that we're properly organised and resourced, and then the numbers flow. Well, when I talk about a business, whenever I look at a business to start with. I always talk about the ABC. So what's the attitude in the business? What's the behaviours in the business? And therefore, what's the culture? And and all of that, if you get that right at home level, you get it right in, in, in the central office uh, function, then actually you've, you've got the makings of a business. But when you've got all those things out of kilter, the numbers will be wrong because they just will. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's probably a good time to move on to post-coronavirus and for us all to get our crystal balls out and uh, see what the future holds. I was reading something from the local uh, government association who, during coronavirus, made a statement about how they were looking to, how their organisation was looking to support care home operators and what local authorities in turn were doing. They estimated, as part of the £1.6 billion that I previously mentioned, that there was going to be 2.5% inflation on non-labour price inputs to care homes. In August, that number was 9.8%. So clearly, if the 1.6 billion was predicated on 2.5%, then things are going to get tough. And an example of a care home situation that David and I are working on, the utility bills from an electricity perspective are going to be around 35 to 50,000 pounds more expensive per home, just because of the energy price increases we've seen of late. Mickey, what, what's kind of keeping you up at night, I guess, in terms of what the future holds for some of your customers? Well, to quote my colleague here, you know, how long do we have um, <laughs> at the moment? I mean, I think that um, there are so many different factors at play um, that are going to dictate how the global economy reacts to uh, what's currently going on regarding inflation. And the best analysts to listen to are the ones that say that they don't know. Because, you know, the energy price is dictated by how the Fed is going to react, how the Bank of England is going to react, what Vladimir Putin is going to do in Russia. And um, and until such time as you have certainty in relation to those and many other factors, nobody knows how high inflation is going to go uh, and how long it's going to stay high for and how low it's going to come down and what level it's going to stabilise at. And that's going to feed into how painful this particular energy crisis element is going to be. But for sure, it's going to be painful, certainly in the short term. Uh, We can see what inflation is at the moment. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the impact that's going to have on the cash flow of the homes and how it's going to squeeze profitability in relation to the home. So logically, your forecasts are pretty much out of the window uh, at the moment. And um, in terms of forecasting going forward, it's very, very difficult to do. So, you know, although we're talking post-COVID, it is quite similar to pre-COVID in terms of the fact that there's tremendous uncertainty. You've got to be patient. You've just got to make sure that people in the homes are properly looked after, the homes are properly maintained. I, I don't have a crystal ball in terms of saying to you what is going to happen, but I can tell you for certain that profitability is going to be down in the short term. I mean, I think the challenges that we face now are, are more acute in certain areas. So the, the staffing challenges are as they have been. They're probably exacerbated at the moment, but they're still there. Direct costs in care homes were generally pretty predictable, and now they're unpredictable. So food costs are up, 
you know, as we talked about utilities there, you know, they're just off the scale. In terms of facilities, just simple things like, you know, getting doors and windows, you know, the the price and availability of them. Um, I I say that as someone who's recently appointed as administrator of a business that sold doors. (laughs) (laughs) But we couldn't get any. And replacing (laughs) replacing parts on white goods, things like that. That is not easy as well because, you know, things are not coming through. And if it's got a chip in it, then you really are going to have to wait, you know. Fortunately, we're not high tech, you know, we're not in the acute sector here, otherwise we would be, you know, having other concerns. So I think, you know, we've got all those unpredictabilities on direct costs, whereas in the past, direct costs were pretty predictable in this sector. It was the staffing costs that fluctuated. And, you know, local authority fees won't keep pace with this, they just won't. And the self-pay, we can push it as hard as as we like. But there's a limit to how far you can push someone. And that's going to be a really interesting dynamic, I think, particularly where we, we saw Boris brought in a cap on how much you have to contribute to your care. Because something that is still the case and has been the case for a very long time is this cross subsidisation. Mm. You know, put, put, put simply, if you're, if you, you know, using sort of just round numbers, typically a care home with mixed private and local authority public public funded residents, if you've got 20, you've got 20 residents, 10 of each, you get £1,000 off the local authority for each resident and you get £2,000 off the private mm. residents because it costs £1,500 a week per resident. But it is the private residents' higher fees cross-subsidising the lower fees. Now, bringing in this cap on the lifetime spending, that's going to take some time to wind in because until you start hitting those caps in one, two, three years' time... You will not see an effect, but once you do, we're now we're now you sort of you're running towards a funding crisis because it, it has you know local authority fees have not kept kept pace with the real cost of care not at all for for a decade over a decade now, and that increased acuity that overflow from NHS NHS capacity has not improved. You know, these sort of all these property developers who went into care sort of fifteen years ago, thinking, "Hey, we've got an aging dem- aging demographic." Like, it's still true. Demand is not going to go away. Hey, this is not a sector that struggles for want of demand and will not struggle for want of demand. Um, that will continue to be there, but funding will be an issue. These assets are generally leveraged. They are. There's generally a real estate asset there. They're generally leveraged. We are now at a two point two five percent base rate, which. But that's what fourteen-year high. Is that fourteen, the highest in fourteen years? You know, assets that want to refinance. You always have sort of changing lender appetites to different sectors. So look, you've got a world where there's going to be, there's always going to be demand for this, but there is a funding issue around it. They tend to be funded assets, leveraged assets. Uncertainty about cost, uncertainty about forecasting. That, that a lender's dream, right? You know, please can I have a, a fifteen-year facility for something which I can't tell you how much it's going to cost to run? It's a tough sell. How long, Simon, do you think it will take for operators to get over what coronavirus has done to the homes and their and their business? I don't think some operators will get over it. And I think, you know, people who are struggling will will have to kind of seek help or will have to look to, to exit. And coming back to, to your point earlier about the consolidation of the market that you were seeing, and we don't want to get to another Southern Cross or, or kind of Four Seasons situation, but I think there will be further consolidation of the market. It's a very, very fragmented market. 
Did you know there are 5,000 operators in the UK? I knew it was a very big number. Yeah. That absolutely blew my brain. And, and the market yeah. oversight team is what, sort of 60 or 70 in their port, the 60, 70 biggest. And that's actually, is it something like 20% of the market? Yes, the that's exactly, 20, so, 25%. Yeah. So, so, they're, so the top 60 or 70 are 25% of the beds in the market. Mm-hmm. So 4,930 other operators do the, manage the rest of the beds. It's huge. And if that was me, and we, we talked... Uh, How do you have an overhead efficiency in that kind of fragmentation? But all we're, we're talking here about cost and funding class. It needs to be consolidated. Well, yeah. You've also got the fatigue, haven't you, of running these businesses during the last couple of years. It's not just a financial question, is it? It's a question of appetite to keep going. And I've been struck when I've spoken to some of the care home managers about their resilience, but people's resilience only stretches so far and we're actually trying to increase capacity and bed numbers etc but I think a lot of people as you were saying would actually be looking to exit and I don't know what that exit would be would that be a closure potentially if they couldn't sell are people looking to enter the market I mean there are new entrants to the market people genuinely looking to move into this market because they see opportunities and it's about matching those people who want to seek the opportunity with those who want to seek the exit so hopefully you avoid the closure but I do think with the closures that we, we will see a continuation and probably a accelerator and putting my crystal ball to, to Penneforth. And I think we will see a continuation and acceleration of recycling of not fit for purpose assets. So yeah. where we have where we, we have buildings that just cannot provide uh, an acceptable modern environment. Or the cost of bringing it to that standard, the cost of bringing it to that standard, or or um, or in terms of the, the business efficiency it can generate. You know, twenty bed homes do not work. No. If it is nursing care, they can work if it's very high acuity care. And actually, I've seen I've, I have seen that several times where I, I've dealt with closed assets. So the business has the business has failed or closed as a nursing home or a care home. And actually, operators are coming into that as a much higher acuity, so it may be uh, severely challenged adults uh, with lots of with lots of complicated issues. Um, it can be uh, ABI, uh, brain injuries, because you get actually very very different. Those when you get much higher fees, yes. you have much longer standing residents because these aren't these aren't old people a lot of the time. These are people who need care for decades, not not less. And they can you can make it work mm. in a smaller configured home. So I think we will see recycling of assets continue but we also you know we, we talked about negative headwinds positive headwinds demand is not going to go away Correct. i don't think a culture of lender forbearance and lender support is going to go away i think you know that is deeply ingrained in our financial culture in this country now tcf treating customers fairly you know being really aware of the social aspect and the visible aspect of you know what, what, what being a lender means and, and supporting customers and and helping customers. So you've got a very sort of supportive investor and lender market. You've got big demand. It's always going to stay high on the sort of nation's agenda, on the PR agenda. And actually, these, these are big strengths. You know, look, we talk about the gas bills going up. I, it's inconceivable to me that British gas is going to be winding up a nursing home anytime soon for not paying their gas bill this winter. You know, and if they it are, wouldn't be the best if, PR, would it? If they are, then they probably need to improve their PR team. And I, I don't for a second think they would do it. But you know, but that, but that's the point. You know, is that re- are we really going to see nursing homes being wound up by utility providers for not paying their gas bill? That that seems in- incomprehensible to me. Well, uh, the government's recently announced a, a package to cap the, the rate, the energy price cap, and that's going to apply to businesses as well. Although that's got 
lost in the news because of uh, recent events. So it would be interesting to see how that how that plays out. But even with that cap, it's still more expensive. And that fixed cost base that was once a kind of pillar that you could understand what your leverage was, operational leverage within the business, has now started to become a kind of variable cost base with things going up. So I think, it, as you were saying earlier, Mickey, about forecasts, it's it's just so, so difficult to to predict now. One final statistic that I saw is that this is from Christie's, 35% of operators were planning to sell within the next year or so, which I thought was was quite stark. Mm. Well, I think if you look at the kind of market scanning that they've done, that you would see a number of people who, we were talking about people who would naturally sell because of the cycle they're in, but then those that have been unable to or unwilling to during COVID, I mean, the transactions have been few and far between apart from administrations. You've not seen many people put their businesses on the market during COVID. Oh, so, so corporate finance volumes have, have dried up yeah. in the last couple of years. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. And I don't, I don't imagine we're expected to see them come back. I mean, I would think it's not, not in the short term, anyway, not with all the uncertainty. But from a lending perspective, it's a, such a specialist sector. And banks... Um, especially in this day and age, are so concerned reputationally around the impact on this sector. That's why I say, you know, if you're in it, you you have very much a philosophy of making sure that you have the right operator, the homes have got the right ratings and they're properly, properly run such that people's well-being is safeguarded. You don't have those same concerns if you're in a property lender and you're lending against traditional residential or commercial property. So banks are understandably cautious in terms of the sector and... You need that finance in order to grow, in order to enable people to be trading properties, buying and selling. So I think COVID perhaps exacerbated that. I think, you know, banks perhaps, notwithstanding that they provided forbearance and all the other very, very important aspects of lending, but I'm sure that they uh, were cautious as a result of the impact in terms of their loan books. Where I do think there's potential for growth in not this sector, but a related sector is retirement living. We're seeing a lot of growth, a lot of development, some big money from international investors going into that particular sector. And I think if you're looking at this sort of environment, uh, or this you know sort of adjunct to care homes, you know, I think the retirement living sector is a sector that's going to grow. It's very big in the US. You've got a lot of big yeah. US players who are coming yeah. here. Yeah, um, so the US REITs. I mean, when you were talking about the new entrance, yeah. the newest the newest health REITs are a real feature now for the last four or five years of whatever we've been seeking an exit or, you know, a new partner coming into any situation, they, they've always been very high. But you know, I don't think you, they, were, they were a fe- feature at all 10 years ago. And, and if it's interesting what you say about the retirement living, uh, where I've come across that from a, from a restructuring advisor perspective, is actually the development side, where they're getting the development wrong. But that is where we've seen the investment um, and the growth and that American model. And it's really interesting whether that's in sort of central London or in the Cotswolds. I mean, I've seen some phenomenal half-built... <laughs> <laughs> retirement living villages out in the Cotswolds over the last few years, which is fine in the Cotswolds. I'm not sure it goes very far in, you know, where I'm from in sort of parts of parts of Manchester or, no. you know, it's, no, it's that sort of, right. you, you, it's sort of that game of two halves again, isn't it? I think that, you know, the premier assets in the, in the, in the premier locations do very well. And, and, but there's, there's plenty on the other side of the tracks, mm. um, which are really, really, really going to struggle. Okay. Well, uh, thank you everyone for joining us for episode three of FRP's Carecast series. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more, 
Just hit subscribe. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us next time and make FRP Carecast your destination for a fresh perspective and knowledgeable insight. Thank you.